everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and our guest today is Cecilia McGargi, and I'm grateful, Cecilia, to have you join our podcast as your participation was highly recommended slash requested by several of your former slot colleagues. So thank you so much, Cecilia. How are you? I am doing great, Christian. I have enjoyed these podcasts and this walk down memory lane so much over the past few months, especially while in quarantine and lockdown. And it's been a really lovely distraction. So thank you for, for all of your work. Well, it's been my pleasure. And it is really just a labor of love. It's certainly not a commercial endeavor for me by any means, but it's been a huge amount of fun to reconnect with people and also meet people like you that I never got a chance to meet with while working at SLOC. And and so it's wonderful to connect with you through colleagues who have spoken so highly of you. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. You mentioned COVID there, so I have to ask you what you're up to these days and how you guys are dealing with the whole COVID craziness. So we live in Charlottesville, Virginia, lovely little college town. And I think the the way we have really gotten through easily is that all the, none of the college kids came back as of mid-March. So we were in the, we have lots of wide open spaces as a result. So the lockdown has been, I think, easier here because everyone wears masks. It's also, it's a really sort of, it's a a great community of people. So people are super respectful. So everyone wears masks in stores and everywhere else. But beyond that, there's a lot of beautiful wide open spaces in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So you can be walking down a country road six feet from your friend and not have to worry about the mask thing, which is really, really nice. Um, And, you know, we've got three kids, two of them are home. Um, Luke, our, our middle child, is out at UCLA, so he's not with us, but we FaceTime a lot with him, which is, which maybe is going to be the biggest thing that comes out of COVID is Zoom and more FaceTiming that we should have been doing all along with loved ones from far away. Wow. So you've got one at UCLA. Are they returning to classes? Are they doing online only? What are they doing down there? So they're doing online only, but there's a lot of support at the university to have some interactions with people. So, and Luke is super responsible, um, or at least he'll have us believe that he is. So, (laughs) so he's, he's working and he's got a lot going on. So he made a really strong case for why it was important. He's going into his junior year, why it was really important for him to be on campus. And so, um, yes, we're, we're happy for him because he needs to be he needs to be there. And who knows when the, when, what will we ever get back to normal? And if not, then all of this generation has to get on with their lives as it is. And I, not, not unsafely. That's, I'm not, I am, I'm, we're, be, we're being incredibly careful and I'm not quick to open up. But at some point, I do think that we have to find new ways to help these kids get on with their lives. I totally agree. It's interesting. And I think I've mentioned this on maybe one or two other podcasts, but for my children, this is really the first crisis that they've had to go through. I'm a bit older, so I remember going through the stock market crash of 87, the oil embargo in the 70s, and you know, huge inflation and high interest rates, and then September 11th, and then the financial crisis of 2008. And 
you know what, we, we come through it. And so it gives you a little bit of perspective, but I think it's hard for, for young people when this is the first time that they're dealing with something that is really crashing their dreams, so to speak. Uh, And I, and I think, you know, for me personally, I felt like I've had a, I need to have a lot more patience and grace with my children when they get a little freaked out about what's going on. Well, what's interesting too, is I think that for years we've been so you know, determined to not allow them too much screen time and to make sure that they're not on social media too much and all of that. And yet in this moment, it's kind of their savior, you know, their opportunity to connect with friends in that way, since we're not allowing them to see one another um, has actually at the end of the day been a saving grace. So he's the middle. What about the other two children? So Sammy, she just graduated from the University of Virginia in this very bizarre time. Uh, And Jack is our youngest. He's 17. He'll be a senior in high school. That's got to be rough. Are they going back to school? Uh, they are. They're going back late, and right now they're still um, they're still talking about a hybrid scenario sometime in the classroom and sometime out. So they're working on that. Yeah, here all the school districts are taking their own approach, and everybody's still trying to figure it out. It's a really confusing time, and yeah. I don't envy administrators. I don't envy teachers. I don't envy students at this time. It's really really tough. Well, what about you, Cecilia? What are you doing these days? So I've been an event and brand consultant for the past 10 years, uh, working mostly part-time since moving to Charlottesville to help raise my family. I did do a five-year stint at the University of Virginia. I produced some educational programming, which I loved. It was a really, really fun, fun time, but it got to the point where I needed to make a little more money and the educational program was fascinating, but five years was about as long as sort of was my shelf life for that. And I wanted to get back into some bigger events. So I actually, one of the things I have been been working on the last couple of years, I've been producing Eat Drink SLC. So I get to come out to Salt Lake. That's Salt Lake's premier uh, food and drink event at the beautiful hidden gem of the Tracy Aviary um, every summer. Unfortunately, we made the tough call in April, of course, to not go forward with this year's event, but we'll be back next year for sure. Well, I hope so. And I hope this COVID is not impacting your livelihood too drastically. I mean, this this particular kind of space is a hard one to operate in when we all have to maintain social distancing and hygiene and masks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it ha- I mean, it has certainly impacted the bottom line, but it's okay. You know, we're, we're really, we're much more fortunate than so many and we're all healthy. And so we're doing good. Well, I, yeah, count your blessings, right? That's what I try to keep. I try to keep focused on that and not focus on too much what has been lost, but uh, what we still have. All right. Not to make this podcast too melodramatic here by any (laughs) means. Um, Why don't we talk about Salt Lake? All right. So why don't we start from your beginning? What were you doing before you joined the organizing committee? And uh, how did you find your way into SLOC? So I was minding my own business as the head of global event marketing at Reebok in Boston. And I say that because I too am a disciple of Doug Arnott's and I've actually worked off and on for Doug since graduating college. Doug hired me out of college to work for this, actually a little known story about Doug. He was, you know, a lucrative lawyer in the city of Boston and he started this thing called the Bay State Games, the State Games of Massachusetts and took a huge pay cut, but it was a precursor to the rest of his existence. So um, 
so anyway, so I'd worked for Doug in Boston and then I helped him out at World Cup in 94. I was living in Northern California, working at Stanford. And then I went to Atlanta for a year to, I was the assistant GM for beach volleyball. So I've been, I've sort of followed Doug and he's my mentor and he's been wonderful. But in, I think it was January or maybe February of 2001. So one short year before the games, I received a phone call from Doug and he started the, he started the call by saying, now just hear me out before you say no, hear me out. So I said, fine. He said, do you think there's any chance you could take a leave of absence from Reebok to come and work in Utah? And I said, you told me not to say no, so continue. <laughs> and he said, well, listen, we're in a bit of a bind. Um, Kelly Elliott, who had been running the Delta Center, the figure skating and short track speed skating venue, had just been offered a wonderful position with the NBA. And as many venue managers, or everybody, actually all staff at organizing committees, on, on, there's a given day where everybody is out of a job. A lot of talented people are out of work. So Kelly took the opportunity a year out and made the really difficult decision to take this wonderful opportunity with the NBA. But that left a huge void in that the Delta Center had no one as their venue manager anymore. So Doug called and you know, asked me this question. And I said, he said, just do me a favor and just ask your boss if, if you think there's any chance. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I went to work the next day and I said to my boss, okay, he's the chief marketing officer. I said, here's the deal. I'm going to ask you a question. And the answer is no. And he said, what? And I said, well, you know, my mentor, Doug, he's asked if I can take a leave of absence and go to work in Utah. And your correct answer is no. And of course, my lovely boss at Reebok said, I don't know. I want to hear more about this opportunity. So I told him about it. And he said, you know, I think you should do it. I really do. I think, I think you should go and do it. It's a year. You can stay connected, have, you know, I don't want you to leave entirely, but I think you should do it. And you need to go to Utah and spread the good word about Reebok being this wonderful company that allows employees this kind of flexibility. Anyway, so I, that wasn't a great answer for me because I was really excited to call Doug back and say, I love my job and I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, I sl so I called Doug and I said, he said yes, but I'm not ready to say yes. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm heart sick over this. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, sleep on it and let's talk tomorrow. So I slept on it. Actually, I didn't sleep on it. I didn't sleep. It was not the right decision. I, I couldn't do it. So... I made the decision at five in the morning, but I wasn't doing it. So at seven in the morning, I called Doug. I got his voicemail. It was 5 a.m. Utah time. And I left him a pathetic message saying, I, I, sorry, I can't do it. I love my job. It's a, it's a huge risk. I'm really, really sorry. If I can help out in any way, let me know. Let's talk later today. And I felt great. I went to work. And at about 11 o'clock that morning, I'm at work at Reebok in a meeting, and my phone is ringing off the hook. And I'm looking at my phone and I'm wondering, oh, and it's not Doug's number. It's 801 phone numbers, but it's not Doug. So finally, I excuse myself and I go in the hallway and it's Tim Larkin, who was the GM at the Peaks Ice Skating. I'm a, uh, sorry, Ice Hockey. And he said, dude, you took it? I can't believe you took it. And I was like, no, 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 I didn't take it. No, I didn't take it. I actually called Doug this morning. He said, Cecilia, he just announced you at a slot-wide meeting as a general manager for the Salt Lake Ice Center. And I, you know, mic drop. 
<laughs> so I knew, I knew for a fact that Doug had gotten my voice message. He knows me well enough after working with him for 25 years. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to push this and see what happens. And thank God he did, because it was the best decision I didn't make in my entire life. <laughs> That is a crazy story. I've never really heard anything quite like it. I was thinking for a moment when you were telling it that when you were talking to your boss and saying, please say no, that that was kind of a a subtle way to try to get the boss to say yes, you know, but uh, it sounds to me like you actually really wanted to stay at Reebok, but Doug pushed you over the edge. Well, I promised Doug I would ask. So I had to keep my promise to my mentor. But I didn't want, I, in that moment, I, and I had already, I considered going to Utah a couple of years earlier and had decided I was really, I really loved my job. I went to Reebok right after I left the Atlanta Olympics. So I'd been there since 96 and I loved it. I was the head of global event marketing. It was a, it was a, it was, I was traveling the world, big events, sporting events. It was wonderful. And I really, frankly, I really was afraid that it, it would not, the job might not be there. Even though my boss, my, the CMO was promising it to me, he didn't have a crystal ball. You know, there were layoffs happening all the time. And so anyway, it all is well that ends well. All right. So you basically drop the phone. But what happens next? I mean, does Doug say, OK, I got your plane tickets. You're, yep, so you're coming out and he's, and he's laughing that big, you know, gregarious laugh. And I'm like, Doug. And he's like, come on, just give it a shot. Your boss said yes. You know, he, he even gave he, he more than said yes. He said, go out and preach the good word of Reebok like. You, it's a year. You can do this. And, for, and essentially, he didn't really say this, but it felt like he'd done so much for me. I really felt like it was important. And it was a big job. It was a big deal. The del- you know, that's the figure skating and short track speed skating. Um, short track became the darling of the Olympics that year, but, but figure skating already was you know, the, the most televised Olympic sport in the Winter Games. So it wasn't a small job. And that, was ex- that certainly was exciting to me. All right. So you come here to Salt Lake. What do you think? Oh, so I've been to, to Salt Lake a number of times, but living there and the beauty around Salt Lake and the, and the people, the kind, kind people. Um, and also the, the community within SLOC was just wonderful. And I knew a lot of people from the, Olymp- the Olympics in Atlanta and from World Cup. So, so that felt like going home. But truly getting up every, well, as I used to run in the avenues every morning at 6 a.m. with Diane Johnson, who was the assistant GM for Snow Basin. And 6 a.m. watching the sunrise on the, up on the 11th Avenue in the avenues, going down to the state, to the Capitol. And it was just breathtaking every day. I was so, I was just in awe. And then hiking on weekends, snowboarding on weekends. It was just, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful year. Tell me a little bit about how you settled into your role. You know, you mentioned that you were coming in, you were replacing someone who had just uh, left and, and uh, for, a, for a wonderful opportunity with the NBA. So now you have to come into this, uh, come into this venue, into this team and, and build trust with everybody. And of course, you had some relationships already, so that was super helpful. But what was that like having to settle into this, to this venue team? It's a perfect setup, Christian, because what happened was, Doug, so once, it, once I was coming out there, Doug gave me more of a lowdown about the team. And he said, so what I can tell you is you have an immensely talented team. It's a high profile venue. So you really do have the best of the best. But the problem is that they really aren't cohesive. They're still not cohesive at all. And it seems like they're still jockeying for position. 
And he's like, I really need you to fix that. He said, please don't screw up all the unbelievable operational work that Kelly (laughs) has done because Kelly was just at the top of the game with regard to that. All the operational systems that were in place were top notch. Um, So he said, don't screw any of that up, but go in and fix his team. And he said, and trust Karen Koppel, like trust Karen Koppel. She's your, she's your, she's, you know, your construction manager and she is just a wonderful resource. Um, So beyond that, just make it a team. And, and that was the perfect job for me anyway, in terms of who I am. So some of it was just helping them, the, the team, the different functional areas to understand one another. Um, I remember having a discussion with one of our IT guys who, was, who asked me to come into a private conference room. And he was making his case for why, and he was, he was really nervous. He, he, wanted, he, he was really wanting to make a case for why IT had to be the first ones in the venue when we moved in. We had a short, we had a 72 hour window to, to change the Delta Center as a basketball venue into an ice skating short track venue. And he was, he was really stressing about the fact that they needed to do so much work with timing and scoring and that that was a critical piece to speed skating. And if that screwed up, the games were a, a complete loss. And so he, he, he was really adamant that they'd be the first to move in. And I said, okay, so I get that, but don't you need a table to put the equipment on? And don't you need a chair? If you're going to be up all night, don't you want a chair to sit on? So I would argue that logistics might, you might want logistics in there a little bit before you. And he just sort of sat back and exhaled, knowing that I completely understood. All I wanted was to bring all of these pieces together and make them work and that nobody was going to get any more attention from me it was going to be whatever was best for the games and they, and that I had no hidden agenda. I think that's the beauty about um, venue management is that we're really a jack of all trades, master of none. And where I sort of think of us as the glue where, you know, we, we don't, we're really just there to, to make everything work and, and mesh together. And we, we don't have, we shouldn't have a dog in the fight. We just run the dog park. So we're just figuring out how to make it all work. And I think that that trust is a huge part of that. And so it took, it wanted being a lot of team building. That's what I learned was that it was going to be a lot of team building that was going to help sort of heal that side of, of our problem. It's so interesting I remember as you're talking to me about uh, the challenges that you were facing there with the short turnaround time and everything and having to build this team. One of the things that I do for the International Olympic Committee is I go and I conduct interviews with the heads of all the functions of the organizing committee. So every host city and in Rio and in Pyeongchang, we interviewed a select group of venue managers as well. And one of the venue managers said, and I, and I, wrote this down because I I thought it was really, really great. It was like, Hey, you know, sometimes people come to you upset. Sometimes they come to you and they say, it's your fault. You fix it, deal with it. That's the life of a venue manager. You know, you just have to, you just have to do it. You have to make it work. And that's what you did. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And so it's funny because again, we did a lot of team building. And I'm really grateful because I had Trina Martinez and Leanne Bingham had been working for Kelly prior on the venue management side. So they had a ton. They were both, they were both phenomenal um, workers and partners. And 
really helped me get up to speed and even allowed me the opportunity to not get up to speed when it wasn't necessary. If something was sort of already cooked and in a great place, they both figured out how to, how to communicate that to me, letting me know I didn't need to worry about that because there were bigger fish to fry in that moment. Um, anyway, so they were really, they were really, they were really great. But, and then along with um, the amazing Karen Koppel, Andy Gable in sport and Heather Linhart Zhang in sport, I was based on Doug's, what Doug had told me, I was expecting for it to be a little bit more difficult, but I think when you come to a place where you say, how can I help? What can I do? That that sort of brings everybody's blood pressure down. And so we wound up um, having a great time. We did it, so we, outside of the regular work day, we did a lot of team building, a lot of potluck suppers up on the 18th floor and, I dragged everybody to the sing-along at the Delta Center, the Christmas sing-along, which you see, again, this very sort of rigid IT guy with his song sheet, you know, rocking along to the, to the tunes was really, really fun. We went, we actually did a wonderful um, group trip to the biathlon venue, and we, we were able to work with some of the Olympian athletes, and oh my gosh, the respect we had after that. All we did was we would run a lap and then get down in position and try to shoot. Well, first we just tried to shoot, which we couldn't do. But then they were like, then once we got a little bit better at that, we'd run a lap and then lie down and try to you know, be still. The respect we had for the biathletes was really amazing. We went horseback riding. We did all these silly things that got everyone out of their comfort zone. Everyone could laugh at one another. Different strengths, different weaknesses, bowling, you name it. We did it to, to bring our team together. And it was a blast. And how did that pay off in the end when it came to the actual delivery of the games, the operations themselves? It was unbelievable because, you know, at games time, different situations come up on the fly. And in that moment, people's true colors come up. And if we had gone into that moment, and not to mention, we built out the venue in 72 hours. That means a lot of us were awake for much of the 72 hours. We were taking naps. We had cots in locker rooms down you know, on the basement level and we take shifts because Karen's, I mean, it was unbelievable. The build out was just, it was a piece of art. Karen did an unbelievable job, but we were checking in consistently, you know, as, as it went and all, as we're, we're all the different teams were loading in as, as we went. And so we were pretty tired when it came times when we had, then we had a few days of practice and then games. So once games time hit, we were already tired, but the, the feeling of the familial family, the, the feeling of family that that was so ingrained in us already meant that everyone was compassionate and everyone was understanding and people were just trying to make it better. And just what can I do? What can I do? That same question in really tough moments where we had, you know, minutes to figure things out. Well, what were some of those unexpected things that popped up? So... I think the, well, the one which I, I heard on Bev's podcast, you know, one of the things I loved was we did these wonderful tabletop scenarios, which were essentially getting red games readiness, you know, creating, um, it was wonderful. We, we were all set up in different parts around Salt Lake in different functional area groups. And you would be delivered a message and the message would read something, you know, something like um, there's a, the, the food truck delivery guy isn't credentialed and he's never had a background check, but he's right. He's at the gate and we need this food, you know, for, you know, in two hours, or there's a suspicious package on the plaza and 
you know, what happens. And, and those, those tabletops were great because what wound up happening was what you have to do is very quickly figure out what's the first call, who is it to, what happens next, and as importantly, who doesn't need to be involved because everyone wants to jump and be involved, but it's really important in that moment that only the critical people are involved so there's no miscommunication, no misunderstanding. And sure enough, fast forward to games time and there's Bev Carey up at Steiner, our, our practice venue, and there's a suspicious package outside. And she handled that so beautifully that I got a call in, in the middle of it, but Beverly already had everything under control. I mean, she was just a rock star. So that was a big one, get a, having a suspicious package or, or a seemingly something that could have been really dangerous um, come up, but everybody was really on it. So it's one example. It's interesting that you you talk about the the planning and the operational readiness and trying to you know cover all of your foreseeable scenarios, and you've done all of this elegant planning work along with your predecessor, and then nine eleven happens and kind of throws a wrench into everything. So, what was the impact of that on the work that you were doing there? Yeah, that was really amazing. Um, again, high profile venue, lots of um, important dignitaries and heads of state coming coming to to see the athletes compete. Um, we took that really, really seriously, obviously. And it was unprecedented. Um, it was it was really sobering. And it also on I remember on September 11th, we were in a we were in a general manager's meeting with Doug. It was you know eight o'clock in the morning and we were all we had a, a, every Tuesday morning, 8 a.m. we'd have our venue manager meeting. And Doug kept leaving the room and coming back and leaving the room and coming back and eventually came back and said, we're being evacuated. There's been, you know, this awful scenario in, in New York. And so it was, it was sobering. And all of a sudden we all, we all aged appropriately about 10 years that day and never forgot um, that that at the end of the day, we, the, the really, really important thing more than anything was to deliver us to deliver us safe games for all of our athletes, for all of our volunteers, for every spectator that never that was always in the front of our minds you mentioned the volunteers there i thought the salt lake 2002 volunteers were exceptional um, what was the volunteer workforce like there how many volunteers approximately were deployed there at the delta center and uh what kind of an impact did they have on the operation 1700 um, oh my God, they were wonderful. It was the, it was the best. And you know, you know, who was really wonderful with regard to that Larry Miller, um, who was just such a, such a, a lovely guy and his wife, Gail, they came to our big volunteer meetings. We'd have, you know, just the entire, they'd open up the venue for us and we had a number of volunteer sessions and, um, he would come every time and he would address the crowd. And it was really, it was, he was such a great, I'm so honored to have been able to partner with him and Scott Williams, who also was in the Delta Center, who became a good friend. Uh, we were also a venue within a venue, which was interesting. So um, Dave Gustafson was running the Salt Lake's Olympic, I think it was called Olympic Plaza or something. It was the outside. Our venue was really the building, but right outside of our building, you couldn't get in without passing through this beautiful, really fun festival atmosphere. And then, um, Jean Marie Morrissey Blissett was the Olympic um, Medals Plaza was right right next door as well. So the three of us worked 
um, in tandem for quite a while, making sure that we had all of that down. And all of our volunteers as well were sort of interchangeable. So that was really, I think they had a great time. I think it was a really fun, a really fun place to work um, and really, really well organized. It was really well done. The event services team and, and volunteers were, were, were great. We've talked about this on a few podcasts with some of your colleagues who work there, but there were some really memorable moments in that Delta Center from a competition uh, perspective, uh, right? So why don't you walk us through some of those? Well, we had a lot of firsts at the Delta Center. Um, a couple of the, obviously the highlight was um, Stephen, was it Bradbury, the Australian speed skater who, you know, huge collision down the stretch who honestly, I'm telling you, he was, he was grinning the whole, like, if you were, if you watch back, he was just psyched to be there. He was not, he was not anticipating winning gold. And the fact that that, that massive, really tragic collision for, for some of the other athletes happened. And he came, comes across the finish line with that huge smile. And um, that was really, that was really, and after the Sydney had just hosted the games, you know, in 2000, that was really, that was a big moment. Um, oh, the scandal, the scandal, the French judge, the, the lovely, um, Paris team from Canada, but the, again, the the silver lining to that was that when they when they sort of the redemption they they went over to get their medal the, at, at the Olympic Medals Plaza, and that night Bare Naked Ladies was performing, and they're a Canadian band, and the lead singer came out. He was wearing this Canadian speed skating suit, which is really funny. But I think there was all this joy. And, and everybody knew, everybody knew. And so even though in that moment, they, I don't think they were getting their gold yet, but in that moment, it felt like a gold medal moment. It was just a beautiful, beautiful, I happened to be there. I, I left the venue, our venue a little bit. I think we actually, we had finished. So I, I, on my way home, I stopped out and um, that was, that was wonderful for them. Although the challenge time for us was that with that, our media center that needed to accommodate, you know, 50 or 60 now needed to accommodate up to 200 because uh, it, you know within hours of time. So you take, a, and this is where, again, the team was amazing, where I think if, had we not become such a team, maybe some people wouldn't want to give up a few feet of their Olympic family area or um, loan us some chairs from another, uh, the volunteer room. And all of that was seamless, which was really, really remarkable because it blew up, obviously. Well, I, I know, Cecilia, that you have given a lot of thought to our conversation today, which I appreciate very much. And I want to make sure that we touch all those critical stories that you have to share with us today. So I'll give you a moment. You can look over your notes. What other things do you have in your memory banks that uh, you want to share with us today? So there's one other really funny story, and that was... Um, Quite a, quite a ways before games time, there was a very distinguished woman coming from the United States figure skating, yeah, United States figure skating out of Colorado Springs. And she was going to spend a couple of days with Heather and the team. And they were all nervous and they were, you know, getting everything ready, all their ducks in a row. And they had asked me to join them for a couple of hours to put her at ease from all from the venue set. So I met with her and we went through a number, I mean, everything. We, we took her top to bottom through everything that was going to happen at the games. And at the end, I asked her if she had any concerns or suggestions for us. And her reply was, and I'm not kidding about this. She said, have you ever considered reapplying lipstick after lunch? During games time, I think the figure skating community would really, really appreciate that. 
And I thought, wow, <laughs> no concerns about the safety of your athletes. No questions about the quality of the ice. No worrying about the placement of the kiss and cry. All you're worried about is whether or not I'm going to reapply lipstick after lunch. The answer is no, I will not. But I was thrilled that that honestly was, was all she had to say. So that, and, and honestly, um, Lori and Katie and Heather, you know, just mouths agape, like what just happened? <laughs> Good one, huh? <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. But you you took it with a with a good attitude, right? You could be uh, incredibly offended by it, but you're right. If that's the, if that's their biggest concern, then you're doing we're a good, good job. Yes, yes, we're good. Um, yeah, and then I think beyond that, it's really it was really just the people. You know, I had, I didn't have a lot of time there. I was only there for a year, not even a year. And as much I would as I would have liked to getting out and getting to know all, I didn't get to meet you, for instance. You know, there were so many people. I really had to focus on our venue mostly and on our, our, our venue team from SLOC, as well as the venue, the Delta Center folks, um, putting them at ease and then local media and that kind of stuff. But um, I, I feel like the, it really, at the end of the day, my, my greatest memories are the people that I, that I got to work with. Well, it's a common theme. So many people that we've talked to, that's what their greatest memory is. So, yeah, you know, I think some of the notables, um, I would love to mention a few folks that that mean, meant and still mean a lot to me. Uh, Katie Clifford, she feels like a mini me, and I really hope she's not offended by that. I really enjoyed working with Alan Brooks and Colin and Missy Hilton. We were friends from Atlanta. Diane Johnson remains one of my soul sisters. We also worked together in Atlanta. And we have a group of girlfriends from Utah who will be friends of, you know, for life. Um, recently, my own, my other Utah she crew has been getting together on Zoom. That's Heather and Katie and Bev and Lori Morency Kuhn, who you recently had on as well. And then another fun one locally here in Virginia, Holly Yurick, who was on the accreditation team. She actually married John Moreland. They live in Virginia. And I have been, a, I've coached against Holly lacrosse a couple of occasions Unfortunately, I've come out on the losing end of that, but it's so fun to see people in a completely different um, space and and just remember our times there. So that was that was great. And another one, actually, Karen Koppel's sister lives in Charlottesville. So the last time Karen and I were together in Charlottesville, I brought the CAD drawing from Slock, from the Delta Center. We were dying. We were having a glass of wine at a winery, just pouring over these you know archaic CAD drawings. It was really it was really, really fun. Before we get to our final segment, I, I do have to ask about post games. And I, I actually want to split it into two parts. Number one, you mentioned that you had a very, very fast bump into the venue because of the NBA schedule, the Utah Jazz. That's their home arena, the Delta Center. But then you got to leave quickly, too, I imagine. You, yes. you can just like linger, right? So what, what, what was the teardown like after the event ends? Yeah, so actually, it's funny, but obviously... Um, as slot employees, we were way more concerned about the load in. We knew we were gonna we were gonna return the venue, you know, as it needed to be. But we were more concerned with the load in because we needed to produce these wonderful games. The load out was it was great. Huge exhale, a lot of work to be done. Everybody's kind of silly, you know. Every you've got that post games high going on. Everyone's exhausted. But again, Karen had Karen and Logistics had a beautiful 
loadout schedule. And we had a great partner in the Delta Center. And I was really thrilled that when I first got there, they were not so trusting. And by the end, it was nice. So even on, even on the load in, they gave us two more hours than we ever expected. They knew that all along, but they didn't, they didn't want to give anything that they didn't have to. And so on the, on the load out, we were really sure to make, we, we made sure that everybody stuck around and did their part from Slock's perspective, because that's what they kept telling us. They were nervous that we know how it's going to be. You guys are just going to roll out of here. And that was never how it was going to be. Um, Salt Lake's a beautiful place with beautiful people. And the legacy, as you know, from Collins, what, what Collins doing up in Park City, um, I've never seen anything like it. I've been to it. I've been to it. I was in Athens. I was in Sydney. I was in Beijing. The, the legacy in Salt Lake and the memories there and the good feeling and it is really just second to none. It really was, was wonderful. Well, let's talk about the legacy for you. So the games end, you go back to Reebok. I sure you, did. And, and, sure and did. what were some of the learnings? I'll, so I'll split this into two parts. A, what were some of the learnings that you took from your Salt Lake experience that helped you in your career? B, did Reebok feel like you had promoted their brand through your engagement? And after you had done it, how do they perceive that, that experience for you? It was a win-win all around. Um, yeah, they, I, I never, so I kept doing meetings. I kept doing team meetings with my Reebok team. I would just do, you know, twice a week. Doug, Doug knew that ahead of time. So to stay connected. So I, I wasn't entirely gone and I attended one of the big global sales meetings. Um, but so coming back was, was really what it was like homecoming. It was really wonderful. I missed, I, I loved that. I, I was again, so grateful to Doug that he forced me to go to Utah, but coming back was wonderful because now my team at Reebok had been completely empowered to run that without me, essentially, you know, they had my support and they could call me with anything, but they were trying not to, cause I knew I was, I had a big job out in Utah. So I came home and my team was, was stronger and um, and then ultimately got promoted and and had other great successes and it was really it was really really great and I think the the biggest learning for me which I learned at each games that I worked at especially under venue management Atlanta and Salt Lake was that at the end of the day they're all moments like even the most stressful it's a moment and you just do the next best thing in that moment and then the next moment comes up so. I go back to Reebok where, you know, we're making sneakers and we're selling, you know, sweatsuits. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, running this high profile venue post 9-11. And so I felt like I was able to sort of bring a, a, a calm back because it, it, no matter where you are, every work environment, you, you, there is a level of stress. But I was able to go back and be like, you guys, it's okay. Like, and sort of, I was, I was much better at that when I got back. Um, and which was also better for, for my health and everybody else's. So those future games, Athens, uh, Beijing, Torino, wh- whatever those games were, were those also under the Reebok umbrella as well? Were you working yes. with Reebok uh, as well? Yeah. yeah, I was. So I was, um, you know, producing our in-country presence and we, we, had, um, we were um, sponsoring a number of NOCs. So South Africa and Russia and, you know, so it was, um, yeah, it was, and it was also great fun because everyone was connected at that point. So I'd be in, I was in um, Athens and hanging out with Karen DeMilo and, and Alan Brooks. And that was, that was great. And same thing in, 
you know, it was Beijing and it was really, it was really wonderful to connect with all of my, my old buddies, my, my event junkies. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating hour for me. Uh, Cecilia, I really appreciate you coming on. But before we get to our final segment, is there anything else on your list that we haven't covered yet that we need to get to? No, I think you've heard enough. Again, it was only a year. I can't take up as much time as everybody else when I was only there for a year. (laughs) Oh, it was a jam-packed year, no doubt. (laughs) That's for sure. Okay, so we'll get to our final segment. Our three questions for you. Question number one is about music. So think of a song that you used to listen to back in the day. It could have been something you heard at Metals Plaza, or it could have been something that you just listened to while you were jogging or commuting to work or whatever. But particular song or artist that uh, reminds you of your time in Salt Lake? This one's easy for me. Um, It's U2 and it's Walk On. And the reason I say that is they were doing, they had a a concert in November after, after September 11th, November of 2001. And um, you should, if you haven't, if you weren't there, you should YouTube it because their tribute to those we lost on September 11th was this wall of names of everyone that was lost on September 11th. And they were singing this beautiful, beautiful song, Walk On. And there were so many friends and colleagues from SLOP that were at that concert. And, you know, we were all still and continue to be deeply affected by September 11th. And, and so knowing, as I mentioned earlier, feeling sort of the pressure to deliver a safe game just a few months later, you know, hearing Bono talk about walking on in this really beautiful, beautiful song was really, it's both so sobering and really moving. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's the song. Not as light and fun as some of the others, but great song. Oh, it is a great song. And actually several of your colleagues have already uh, nominated that for that very Ah. reason that they attended the concert. They saw this wall of names at the end and uh, and it was a very beautiful, sobering experience. So I appreciate you sharing that. And so we've yeah. got that on our Spotify playlist that listeners can great, great. And, uh, can catch when they have a moment. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's go to our food question. Is there a particular restaurant that you like to frequent while you were working there at the organizing committee? So what you're going to learn from this is that I'm a relatively cheap date. Um I, in an, in an effort not to repeat, because there have been so many wonderful suggestions, I half of them are out of business. I want to go back and I wish they were still there. Um, but I'm going to go with Pie Pizzeria. I could walk there from home. I lived on South Temple, so I could walk there. They had good pizza and pitchers of beer, and it was just a fun atmosphere. Um, I also, I really liked Cucina in the avenues. We used to you know, go on these great hikes with my girlfriends um, on Saturday mornings, and we'd stop in Cucina, and that was a really fun little little spot. So, and of course the globe for coffee, um, lazy moon cafe after work on Fridays, all the usuals. All right. Well, you're the first person that mentioned the pie, which is an institution here, or at least yeah. up in the university area. And so I'm very happy to add the pie to our map. Excellent. And, uh, so we've got a little map on the website and all of the restaurants that have been nominated are pinned on this map. So you can go there and you can see all the places that we used to frequent. And those that are no longer there, we have a list uh, below the map of all the restaurants that are no longer in existence. Mm -hmm. All right. Time to put a bow on this interview with your goosebump moment. Well, there were many. Um, I think for me, 
it came when it was almost over, really. After the figure skating competition, there's a thing called the exhibition, which, um, so it's after all the medals have been awarded, there's an entire night dedicated just to these medalists have a chance to skate their own program. They don't have to worry about all the other requirements. It's just a beautiful program. And Michelle Kwan, who was heading into the competition, everyone wanted to win gold and who clearly expected to. But then young, lovely Sarah Hughes skated the program of her life and took the gold. And it left Michelle with actually the bronze. And Michelle had to take the ice that night of the exhibition for her prepared program. She was wearing a beautiful gold dress. <laughs> she was skating to Sting's Field of Gold, Fields of Gold. So she clearly had planned on winning the gold. Um, so here she was accepting defeat, but also giving a beautiful performance and reminding us just how fragile these games are. And that even when you think, you know, you just don't. Um, and the time and energy these athletes put in, and it really felt like in that moment, like, like we had really, we had done everything we could to make it the best that we could. And I think, and I know Michelle even appreciated that. Um, it really was the end for all of us. It was the time to pack it up and give the Delta Center back. And it was just a beautiful ending to a, to a really amazing experience. That memory is a beautiful ending to our conversation this morning, Cecilia. I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us today. Now, if our colleagues and listeners want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing to support events, or they want to just catch up and talk about Salt Lake 2002, what's the best way for them to contact you? Oh, they should reach out on LinkedIn for sure, or at my email address, which is Cecilia, that's two E's, C-E-C-E-L-I-A dot McGargie. M-A-G-A-R-G-E-E -E at gmail.com. And I, I hope that they're all on the Friends of Salt Lake um, page on Facebook because that's such a wonderful resource. It's been really, really fun seeing, seeing everybody's messages there. So, and thank you, Christian. This is, this is such a gift to all of us. Well, it's been, uh, it's been an honor to really connect with so many wonderful people and share these amazing stories of the game. So I appreciate it once again. So Cecilia, thank you. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Christian.